Well, welcome to State of Mind Talks, the podcast series from State of Mind Sport. Uh, this is a series exploring transition, the complex emotional and mental backdrop to confronting and going through major change. I'm George Riley, and each episode I chat to a familiar name from the world of sport. And this week's guest is one of the biggest names in world rugby, an all-conquering Wigan legend and England international now finding some of his very best form in the twilight of his career, perhaps in the south of France. Uh, Sam Tompkins, great to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Very well. And I'm loving the setup, first of all. Talk me through where you are. Um, I built a little um, little pub in my garden um, through lockdown uh, with an English builder uh, who's, who's my mate now over here, Paul Jenkins. Um, said we've got a few weeks off training, why don't we knock something up in the garden? So we built a built a little pub. So yeah, that was a uh, it's bedtime for the kids inside. So I thought I'd better come out here. Any excuse to get outside. Um, there's there's so much uh, I want to talk with you about transition, both in and out of rugby, and and as your uh, your career, through your career, and how you've changed uh, as a person. In terms of, of where we are at the moment, though, dealing with what we are and, and how it's been in in France, where you are, what's your what's your take been on how unsettling the last year has been for everybody? Uh, it's just been, I think it's been bizarre for everybody. Um, you know, it, it only seems two minutes ago when people started talking about this coronavirus and then it was, oh, we could be going in lockdown, which was sort of seen as a joke at first, wasn't it? That, you know, you could be kept in your, in, in your house because of a virus. Um, yeah, it seems to have flown by. Um, to, for me, being in, in France, there was obviously a big big difference for us. Um, my family, in 2019, we had lots of family coming over to visit and um, we, we had our, our third child, my daughter, um, in, in, in late 2019. Um, and then, you know, we had, we had nobody could come for, for, for last year. So it was, for us, it was, it was strange. And um, me and my wife made a, you know, a decision straight away that we want to make the most of this. And, yeah. you know, for, you know, since I've been 16, I've been, been involved in, in rugby league seasons and it's, um, it, you never get the chance in the middle of summer to spend any time with, with anyone really, you know, it's your, your toughest part of the season, you know, sort of from Easter onwards, you, you, you fall into it. So, Last year, I said, "Look, I've you know I've not even finished playing yet, and we get a summer at home." Um, so I I tried to make the most of it um, as a family over here. Although we we're away from extended family between me and my wife and my and my kids, we we actually had a, a really good time. So you immediately found the positive in a in a negative situation, but I guess circumstance helps a bit because you know you've got quite a nice place there. I know some of your teammates were probably living in in flats and stuff, and found yeah. it, found it a little bit harder being locked up. Yeah, 100%. You know, I know we're very, very lucky we are to have some outdoor space. And, um, you know, some of the lads who live away from family, um, living on their own, you know, down in the south of France with a family two, three hours away. And only young kids who, like you say, have no outdoor space. And you sort of had to be around the stadium because you had to train on your own, but you had to be close enough for medical care and things like that. So um, it, it was it was difficult. Um, and, and obviously people do it a lot tougher than we had to do, but you know, we, we were lucky that we could make the most of it. Uh, this, this series has focused on the, on the complex uh, emotional backdrop, I guess, to transition in life and, and pro sport. So let, let's jump back to the start and your transition in, into rugby league. How, how did you find rugby in your early life or, or was it something that found you? Um, I, was, I was living in Chorley at the time, you know, 
not a, not too far from Wigan. My dad's uh, my dad was a police police officer, um, and from a from a young age, he, he joined the force at eighteen, and and he sort of had to to go wherever wherever he, he was told um, to move up up the ladder to to eventually become a sergeant. So, um, my brother Joel was born in in Warrington, and that's where my my parents are both from. All my family live in Warrington. Um, they moved down to Milton Keynes. That's where I was born. Um, not many players have, have come from Milton Keynes, I don't think. No, not the whole um, And then, no, no, not really. And uh, and then moved to Chorley, where my dad got an opportunity to again move up the policing ladder, and that's where Logan was born, and that's where we settled. Um, and I'd have been about six. Joel was have been about eight. And uh, Joel went down to the local team, Chorley Panthers. Um, as, as kids, me and Joel had been taken to Wilderspool. Um, every home game to watch Warrington. We were big Warrington fans. Um, my dad took us and uh, my dad and went with his uncle and his mates and that was us every weekend. So for as long as I can remember, it was on a weekend, it was going to going to Warrington, watching watching the game. And then as we started playing, it it, it, it was the most normal thing ever to, to be playing rugby on a weekend because we'd been we'd been watching it all the time. So it was just something you did, and I guess the family helped, and having the two brothers as well as your as your dad doing it helped. Um, some people highlight and, and and chase a dream; others, I guess, just fall by accident into a career. Uh, which one were you? Um, falling into it, hundred um, percent. My dad's never played a game of rugby in his life. Um, he's just he was just a guy from Warrington that liked Warrington Wolves. That was it. There was never there was never any driving ambition. That he wanted rugby player kids. It just happened that when we went started playing it, we were we were all right at it. You know, we were pretty good as kids, and then that obviously ignited something in us. And 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 then it was my parents then decided to move to Wigan to facilitate us playing rugby. Um, you know, at, at a young age, um, they were driving us to Wigan, which was you know 20, 20 minute drive there, twenty minute bike, but in different places with three of us. So um, they just said, oh, well, we've nothing to stay in Charlie for, so they just moved and. And um, yeah, you could say it's paid off in the end, but um, that's when it it never, strangely, as a kid, when someone says, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was like, oh no, I'm just going to be a rugby player. And, you know, you have that blinding, well, that's just what I'm going to be. It's not, it was never questioned until I was about 13. I was like, all oh, right, so you can't just choose. You've, you've actually got to go through some, um, some selections to, to get into that. So for as long as I can remember, that's all I said. I just want to be a rugby player. There was never any fireman, nothing. And it was straight answer every single time. Now I'm just going to be a rugby player and that was it. Well, that single-minded, positive mindset, even as a kid who didn't really understand how it worked, that probably set the foundation for you because there wouldn't have been any self-doubt because you've already told yourself that's, that's just what you're going to do. I just thought you could pick what you want to do, and <laughs> that's what I'd picked at six. And that was it. It was that was going to be the case, you know. You know, fast forward ten years to when I was sixteen, it was a it was the harsh reality kicked in that it's not not quite as simple as that. Uh, but my desire for it then was, you know, what was gone from my, my blinding confidence that that's what I'll be, and then sort of changed into you know a real determination that no you know what i am gonna do it so um, yeah there must have, i was gonna say there must have been that split blow this is the first and only time i'm ever gonna compare my own sporting prowess to yours but when i was trying to make it as a as a young footballer at, at leeds and i got to the age of 15 and i realized that i'm not gonna make it i didn't have that 
kind of driving determination mm. that you've just outlined to say, actually, no, I am. I just thought, actually, I don't want it enough to do what I have to do to even have a chance. But you had that little yeah. moment where you thought, no, I've got a chance here now, so I better make the most yeah. of it. Mine, mine, actually, I can narrow mine down to one, um, one game, weirdly. was So my, my first year of academy, um, Sean Wayne was the coach, and um, he, he wouldn't pick me. I was only 16. I was playing under 18s. And me at 16 looked like a 13-year-old and yeah. some 18-year-olds. And then, so I, I was I was way out of my depth. And Sean Wayne wouldn't pick me. And uh, I was playing for nothing. You know, I wasn't one of the paid academy players. I was just, you come along and, and, and play. If you get picked and we win, you get 25 quid. That was it. I wasn't contracted or anything. Um, and Sean just wouldn't pick me all year because I wasn't up to it. And I'd go and ask him every week, why am I not playing? He'd rattle off all these reasons. I'd go, yeah, I fully understand. I get it. I wouldn't pick me really, but I need to ask the question. Um, and then the uh, semi-final before the grand final, we played against Widnes. I wasn't playing. I was carrying water. And then um, a fight kicked off, huge fight, brawl. We had eight people banned for the final, which meant, unluckily for Sean, he had to pick me. I was in. And uh, we played a game uh, against Leeds at Leeds at Headingley. So, you know, I'd only been 60. My favourite place, yeah. Still love going back there. <laughs> um, didn't get as many boos when I was 16. Um, and I played in this final. We won. And I actually played well. And I thought for, for that, that year leading up to it, it was when other kids were getting paid. And, and I, I, I'd sort of then realised you know probably not going to get this it's probably not going to be but i didn't that wasn't through lack of effort or lack of determination it was just through not getting picked for long enough you you, you get the hint um but i played in this game we won and i played all right and i thought you know what i can i reckon i can here and, and i think had had that game not happened and had i not been picked in that final i think you know after that i could have made different decisions and um you know i'm, I'm thankful thankful for the fight in the semi-final because without that one I got that opportunity and and then yeah I got I got then the I stayed at Wigan again on, on on no money I could have gone somewhere else but I had some real good advice from my parents at that point and and that sort of I think that then sort of created the path that I've been on. What was that advice? Well I'd so I hadn't been getting picked or paid and um, after my first season a couple of teams came in Widness and Salford and uh, they were like, look, you can come to us. We'll give you, I can't remember the figures, I said four or five thousand pound, you know, 500 pound for signing. And when you're 16, 17, it's like, well, I can, I can buy my car. I can I can learn to drive and, and things like that. And then, so I went to both of them clubs, Witness and Salford and, and sat there and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do that. By this point, because Joel was playing first team at 17 at Wigan. So I was, you know, Joel, Joel, Joel was leaps and bounds ahead of me at my age so I was like yeah I'm going to do that and my parents were like but do you want to go and play for Witness do you want to play for Salford because I've been through the academy system at Wigan since I was 12 um, and all I'd ever wanted to do was play for Wigan although I was a Warrington fan as a kid once I was in the Wigan system it was almost like to com complete the Wigan system was to play first team and, and you get you get told that as a scholarship player at Wigan like there's a clear path. If you're a good scholarship player, you'll get re-signed. If you're a good scholarship player at 15, you'll go to the academy. Academy kids go to first team. So it was almost like, although I wanted to, I was a Warrington fan, I didn't want to play for Warrington. I wanted to play for Wigan because that's where I was. 
and um, and yeah, my parents were like, "Do you, do you want to play for Solon and Wigan?" I was like, "No, but it's a few grand." And and they just said, "Look, just just stay at Wigan." Wigan had said, "Look, if you want to go somewhere else, you can. But if you want to stay, you can." Like we're not too fussed. And um, my parents said, "Look, we'll find a way of getting you a car." And and uh, I did that. You know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but it was like we'll find a way and find my. My grandma at the time loaned me some money to get a scooter so I could get a boat, and uh, and and I stayed. And then maybe six eight games into that season where I wasn't getting paid, I just played really well. So I think of the confidence of this final we spoke about the year before, it just sort of gave me a give me a boost. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this. And then I got a contract. I was playing first team twelve months later. So yeah, you were in the the perfect place to to forge a pathway and uh, and have your transition into professional sport. Um, Leon Price on his episode of the of the State of Mind Talks podcast um, spoke very movingly about the environment that when he was a teenager like you when he made his debut, the environment that he went into. I mean, rugby league is a very macho environment anyway. I guess making it mm. making your way as a young kid in a team, but certainly in the in that era even more so. Um, and he said he had to, you know, he had to mask his, his mental health really in order to show no sign of weakness. Otherwise he thought he wouldn't get his, his chance. What do you remember of, of the culture in the environment that, that you walked into in that Wigan dressing room um, when you, you were that teenager you described as looking like a 13 year old? Yeah, it was, it was tough. You, you get a thick, thick skin pretty quickly, which is, which has been handy for me over the years, but it's, it's it's something that's completely new to everybody, but I felt like I already had an in because I'd seen Joel Joel doing it. So Joel would come home from his academy training sessions. He'd be, you know, I don't know, he'd have a black eye, or he'd be like, oh, I've been being sick. I've been on the rowing machine that long. It's made me sick. And like for the normal sixteen-year-old, like you're a kid. No, no kid puts himself through that. But you know, I'd seen Joel's in an environment where that was the norm, and to get the absolute maximum out of yourself you had to do it so I feel like when when I went into the academy I probably had a little bit of a heads up of, of what was to come um, but yeah it, it's tough and when when I look back I think yeah you do go through some times where you you know you, you, you're with you're with lads that are a lot older than you that have been there and and it's yeah it, it's pretty daunting and for me all, all my friends were um, that I'd played at Wigan St Pat's with they're still my friends today but those guys were going to work and I was I was still working. I was an apprentice greenkeeper when I left school while I was in the academy. That was that was what I wanted to do. And uh, I was doing that. And then my friends would be apprentice plumbers, you know, electricians, whatever it would be. And then at night, they'd just go out and on a Friday, we'd catch up and, well, what have you been up to? And I'd tell them and they'd be like, that can't be right. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd run up hills in A-Hall until, until we're sick or... You're doing, you're wrestling each other, and you do, and and for a normal person, it is strange. And now I think, I look at my son, uh, my eldest son Rex. I think I'm not putting him in that. <laughs> you're like 16, you're still a kid, aren't you? But you know, it's only when you think back, but it was just the norm, and that's what you do, and and that that then sort of creates a, the sort of the mental resilience that you that you're going to need. When you um. When you reflect, I can sense that you know you are reflecting a lot. I guess these chats kind of help bring through a lot of the great memories you've had of winning Challenge Cups and and Grand Finals, mm. as you did with Wigan. You know, fantastic career. 
was there ever a part of that that journey with Wigan when you did stop and think I have, I've made it or were you still striving with that no. determination all the way through to now did you ever kind of stop and think this is I've made it here this is me I'm living the dream never never once never once I think the environment is so tough and demanding and and it doesn't matter where you've got to, you're getting pushed. And I, I, I genuinely never had that thought for as long as I was at Wigan. And we'd win trophies. And, and I've, I've said this before to people, when I've won trophies, it's relief that I feel. Relief that everything that you've done was actually worth it. And it's not um, like I'm, I'm the worst loser. So when, when, I, when I win, I'm, strangely, I'm, I'm just happy that no one else has won. If I win a grand final, I'm just happy that Warrington or Saints or Leeds haven't won it. It's not really, it's a strange feeling. It's, it's pretty pretty tough to describe, but that's, that's mine's, mine's a relief. that Because I know that every team trains hard. Every team has a group of players that do everything they possibly can, or the majority of players that will do everything they possibly can to win. And when you, when you lift a trophy, I remember lifting the first trophy in 2010 and we'd had the horrendous pre-season. Michael Maguire just ripped us to pieces. When I lifted that, lifted the trophy at the end of the year, it was like, oh, right, finally, that makes sense now. So all that we've just been through, that's this is what it's for, and 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 that's that's what it is. I've got a, I've got a strange thing when even when I win a game, I, I win I win games. I'm just like I'm just so glad they didn't win that because we tried really hard. Sometimes you lose games, you think you know the much better team, but the tough the tough games and and finals and semi finals, it's relief after the game that I feel rather than anything else. How much have you changed as a as a player from the teenager making his debut to the the thirty two and a half year old that I'm I'm talking to now? Um, I probably had three stages of when I first came in. Um, it was you don't really care what what you you know you don't really have any um, you don't have much pressure on you. Obviously, I had pressure from playing in the academy well or starting my first team career well, but there's no real pressure because the senior players above you, that, that you know, the pressure, when I was playing, the pressure was on Thomas Lulewine, and Sean O'Loughlin. It wasn't on a 19, 20-year-old kid playing halfback. It wasn't. When I, I made my England debut, me and Kyle Eastman were, were um, six and seven. We were only 20. It was when I was in England camp a couple of weeks ago before the Exiles game. Um, I was speaking to someone, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Joe Westerman. He was around England at that time. I was like, yeah, we were 20, six and seven, we're 20 years old. And I wouldn't be that confident with a six and seven of 20 years old now going into the World Cup, but it wasn't because I think the pressure then was on Adrian Morley, Jamie Peacock, people like that that were that were older than us. So the first stage of my career was just not really not really caring that much because there was, I didn't feel any pressure. And then the sort of mid-stage of my career from sort of 24, sort of moving... 2013, we won the double at Wigan and then moving to New Zealand. And, and I then became a, 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 a player that was seen as a senior player that had played well. And I feel that's when the pressure's on you. That's when the pressure's on you to, to um, sort of play well and lead a team. Whereas I think the third stage, which is what I'm in now, is I feel like I, can, I understand the game obviously a lot better than I ever have. And I'm completely comfortable being a leader, completely comfortable making decisions. And I'm, I'm comfortable telling people, you know, this is what's best for us or lifting someone up or ripping into somebody if I need to. 
you know, it's only in the last last few years, probably probably like the last year at Wigan and, and the and these these the time that I've had at Catalan, I feel like I've I've sort of matured into what I what I'd see is somebody that's completely confident in their own sort of leadership and leadership combined with with playing ability. I guess the comparison I'm making in my own head right now is, you know, the guy a couple of weeks ago when uh, young Will Price came on for his debut, Leon's lad, and you you trotted over at Huddersfield and wished him well and gave him a handshake while the match was going on, which was a really nice touch. And I'm comparing that to the niggly teenage Sam Tompkins who was winding everybody up on the pitch and winding every fan up, fan up in the in the opposition terraces. They they seem to me like two completely different people. Uh, yeah. Well, they're not the same person, but um, I, I'm, I compete for everything. And if niggling becomes a part of that, or you know, I've, I've obviously I've overstepped the line before, and you know, sticking the fingers up at Leeds fans, you know, that's you know, it's not something I'm proud of now. But as a young kid, that's I was just caught up in the heat in the moment, you know, and um, you know, it, a lot of it's pantomime villain. You know, I can do things and get booed for nothing, which I accept. So I think, well, you know what, if I'm getting it, I'm giving it back as well. You know what You've I mean? Got booed. That 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 leads flicking the V's, um, which I obviously remember as a Leeds boy. But didn't and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't later that year when you played for England at Leeds, didn't you get booed by by effectively your own fans who were England fans? It was actually before, I got booed first. Oh, you got booed first, right? So I, I yeah. do remember that wrong. Okay. So it was your fault first. So you got the fingers because you booed me. <laughs> I think. I hey, think I wasn't that's, there doing. That's how. Uh, I think that's how it is in my head. I might be wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that was a strange one. Playing at Leeds, running out, and I ran out with Jamie Peacock and, and James Graham. Ran towards the south stand, warming up, and was like a resounding boo. Right. And I was like, that's strange. Didn't think anything of it. Must be then, for someone else. <laughs> yeah, genuinely. I thought Jamie Peacock was leaving Leeds or something. And then I started catching balls in, in you know, kickers were kicking and, and backs were catching. Every time I caught it, it got booed and, and it became a thing. And then that first game, it like took me by surprise. And Jamie Peacock said to me after the game, you know, that's you know, it's bullshit, that it shouldn't happen. And I was like, oh, just I'm not too bothered. I was bothered at the time, but for that one game, because then after that, it was like, yeah, of course they're going to boo because they booed last week, and that became a thing. And uh, yeah, been getting booed since. It's not. It's I'd, I'd be lying if I said that it affected me. Genuinely, hand on heart, it, it doesn't. And um, you know, I've been booed on on big stages, but I think I was always at Wigan, a successful team where the Wigan fans, you know, made up for that. You know, I was getting booed off of opposition fans, but the Wigan fans loved me. And, and you know, I wasn't playing to impress any other fans. I was playing. I was playing to impress my mates. Played to to being a successful team. And you know, the on the back of that, the, the Wigan fans are all over you. So that's never kind of crept into your real life and given you kind of I don't know self doubt, anger, whatever. The fact that people are hating me on something that I'm not. I mean, I and I chatted to Leon about this at, at length and to Lee Breers actually in his episode. I get a bit caught up myself. You know, people have got some people have a you know perception of me, which is just way off the, the person I am, like way off. And it, it does bother me the fact that like if you you know people don't know people people don't have a clue who I am and know anything about me. I guess it's different so, when you're so, on an actual stage doing what you do. But so why why would you care what somebody thought of you that you don't know? Yeah, I know. I mean, I I, I generally don't, but it's it's when 
it's when people come to conclusions that I know are wrong. It's like, well, mm. how can how can you think that? Or how can you you know does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense, but I just I just think it's someone I don't know can make a judgment on me as a person from watching me for an hour and a half playing a game. Well, what, what, that, that's a real strange way of judging someone's character as a person. Mm. I mean, I would never watch a sport or never, if I had a snippet into, I could see you for one and a half hours every week, unless you were doing something really extreme in that one and a half hours, I'd never make a judgment on you as a person. And I think, yeah, I've, I've always thought, I'm just not that bothered about it. And obviously social media now plays a huge impact because social media then gives everyone a platform. If it's written down and they've got a, a Twitter handle, somehow it becomes, it holds a little bit more weight. I've had the worst possible things said to me online, but I think I bet, yeah. no one's ever said that in the street. So they either don't believe it or they've never bumped into me in the street. And I've, I've seen a lot of people and no one's ever said it. And I think, yeah, it's just, it's never, but the only thing that has bothered me, things have been said around my parents at games that's upset my parents. And I've thought, yeah, you know what, it's wrong. But I said to my mum, like, it's not real life. Like me playing rugby and someone saying, oh, he's a, such a thing, he's horrible, is it? That's not real life. They've just seen me playing a game. You don't watch Coronation Street and start kicking off with the actors when you see them in the road, do you? Like, that's not how it is. It's not real life. Some so people get, do. Don't get caught up in it. Yeah, but those people, that's the kind of people like, you're bothering. Um, so, like, things have got said. Things have got said. Um, and, and I know it's upset my mum in, in crowds. People have said, oh, I hope he does this and, and like sort of wish real bad injuries on me. And my mum's like struggled with that a little bit. And and that's the only bit that, that bothers me, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that my kids are of an age where they'll never go to a rugby game where they'll sort of experience any of that. Um, in terms of uh, transition and your, your journey, both as a player, but also geographically, I guess, because um, Anthony Mullally's episode, he was discussing the bond between attachment and fear and and why we're more likely to, to stick with something you know that we know that we find is, is is comfortable rather than embrace the unknown and you've done the latter because you you know you have uh, taken the lead you I'm speaking to you now you're okay you're not far away but you're in a different country with your family uh, and you've also spent a couple of years basically on your own in the when you went to the NRL on the other side of um, the other side of the world so is, is that part of your mindset that you are you know, you're, you're happy to attack that kind of, that transition in you and see the change and see it as a, an opportunity for discovery and self-discovery. Yeah, it, it's, um, for me, I've always just thought I'd go and do something else at some point. When I got into the first team at Wigan and I was playing, I was really happy, 2009, 10, 11. And then we'd won a Challenge Cup in 2011 and, and I sort of had this feeling of like, let's go and do something else. And I've never been one of these people that's, idolised the NRL and wanted to go and test myself and test myself against the best, like the most cliche line that comes out of rugby league players' mouths. I, that was never me. I'd never even thought about it. And um, I actually had a, you know, real in-depth meetings with with Saracens Rugby Union to, to move there in 2011. Um, during the meetings, it, it came out about Joel could potentially go and then the transfer fees were, were, were so different. They just said, well, we'll just take Joel. So I'd have gone there. That that could have been as easily wow. my path, um, and it was it was all set to go. And Ian Lennigan just said, "Look, we'll, you know, we're going to let you all go, but you're basically the the buyout clause was seven hundred and fifty grand, 
and Saracen said, well, we'll, we'll take Joel because Joel's was less than that. Um, and then Ian Lennigan said, look, we'll give you a new contract. So went in and, and, and uh, you know, I've always had a good relationship with Ian and he said, look, I know you could have gone somewhere else, but we'll, we'll give you a good deal. Did that. And as soon as I'd signed it, I was like, but that thing I was looking for about going to rugby union was a change. And now I've just signed a five-year deal doing the same thing I've just been doing. Mm. I was like, that was a poor choice. So after 12 months into a new five-year deal, I had to go and knock on his door and say that I wanted to leave, which went down, as you'd imagine, lead balloon. Um, and I just wanted to do something different. Do you, did you some... reconcile that yourself as, I've made a mistake. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have just stuck with what I know. I, I, need, to yeah. make, I need to do something different here. I, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Money was a factor as well. I was I was really well paid, um, and I'd, I'd I'd doubled I'd doubled my salary. I was on decent money. I doubled it, and that was the blinding factor for me. But then I realised I could learn that doing something else as well. I'm just going to be doing the same thing, and it wasn't that I disliked Wigan. I didn't fall out of love with Wigan or rugby. It was just something inside me that wanted to go and do something else, and and that's what that's what then uh, my my uh, agent and now my mate Andy Clark just said, "Oh, let's let's speak to some teams and uh, spoke to a few Australian teams." And New Zealand Warriors came in, and I said, "Yeah, let's do it." I just wanted to do something else. Really, it wasn't it wasn't you know there was there was no issue at Wigan. It was just for me. I wanted to go and do something else for a bit. When we talk about you know big leaps, life transitions, major changes, that's that's a big one. You've just done right there and you know you, it seems like you just decided right I'm going to do this it's, it's something a lot of people will think about especially when they're stuck in a life mm. they're frustrated by or don't particularly like but it's something we will daydream about and never do so how, yeah. how did you you know how did you get your brain right like, actually I'm just going to do it well I always had that I'm just going playing rugby you know for, for for someone with a normal job they're going to have to go somewhere they're going to have to meet new friends they're going to have to try and work out the job I was just going playing rugby. It's not, it's not a real job, is it? It's, <laughs> I was, I was, I was already playing rugby. Just go and play rugby, but somewhere different. Like, yeah, all right. It's not. I knew I'd go into an environment and I'd meet thirty new blokes and I'd be friends with them. And it was easy, really. It wasn't the, the actual moving there wasn't. Once I got there, and um, you realise how far away you are from from family. I was only twenty three at the time, and uh, twenty four. Can't remember. And, uh, before I went, everyone was like, you're only a day away from home. You're, it's a day on a plane. You know, you can always come back and people can come to you. That's that's rubbish. It's not. Because if someone wants to come to you, they've got to book two weeks off work. It's thousands of pounds. It's, you, you're never going to, you can't just nip home. Mm. But I, I loved living there. And I loved seeing a different, completely different culture, completely different way of living, uh, different environment. And, you know, me and that, was then my girlfriend and my wife, Charlotte. We we loved living there. And then the opportunity to come back, Chris Radlinski phoned me. Um, I just snapped the PCL ligament in my knee in 2015. And um, I was I was just down a little bit. I was like, you know, it's, I've never I've never had an injury before that. And you start thinking, oh God, it's, you know, it might not be right this. And it, Chris Radlinski pounced give me a phone call I don't think he actually pounced he, he would just call me and said look would you consider coming back the, the marquee signing rule was coming in so financially it wasn't going to be much different and um, and 
my, my wife fell pregnant at the same time. So then the idea of being in Wigan was completely different again. You know, it was, I wasn't going to be going back to what I was, yeah. what, I, what I was doing before I went to New Zealand, if you know what I mean. I was there, I was a young lad in living in my first house, going out all the time, just sort of free living. Then I was going to go back with my missus and my baby and going to buy a family home. So that was then, that was then like, oh, I'm going to go, that, that's something different. I'm going to go and do that. Now, during that period in New Zealand, we, we, we chatted a fair bit, um, I think largely because I, you know, I, was in, I was in the office and my job at the BBC at the time on, on antisocial hours, which worked for you being at the other side of the world. A couple of things I, I recall from, from those chats we used to have was, was A, you used to say how much you missed your dog. <laughs> and, and B, which I guess is the same thing, you, I, I kind of got the impression you were quite you were quite lonely. I don't know if that was just my perception of of how you were at that time. Yeah, um, I don't know if I was lonely as such, or I'd describe it as lonely. But um, yeah, when you when you're such a long way away, and you're in a team environment, so you've you've naturally got you know a group of fellas that you you're friendly with, and you can go on a night out with. You can do whatever you want, you know, socialising with, but. What you don't have is those mates were, you know, touched on earlier. I've got the same friends from when I was seven, eight years old. I went to high school with them. Those same mates that I could just call up and say, oh, look, do you want to go and have a coffee? And basically sit there and talk rubbish. You know, nothing significant, but just sitting in Starbucks a full afternoon, looking out the window, talking rubbish. And, and that's not, that's something that I definitely, I've definitely taken for granted. Um, and and you know, now, now being in France, it's something that I don't take for granted. Um, you know, it's, it's more that that sort of security of people that you know any time of the day. You don't really think you need to speak to anyone, but just having that comfort of someone that you're really close with, you can come and sit down, talk rubbish, be really honest, talk about anything you want, and it's not forced at all. Whereas I think that's that's what I missed, and and that's probably where, although I wouldn't describe myself as lonely there, there was elements of that that I, I certainly missed. You know what? That that's actually a really interesting point. And I'm a big believer, actually, sometimes things happen or circumstances change in our lives. And it kind of really brings home to us the importance. And, it, you know, it's part of it's a big part of mental health. When we talk about our mental fitness, yeah. it, it, it brings home the importance of our circle. You know, for yeah. me, I, you know, I went I went through some, you know, quite trauma a few years ago. And for me, it was like one of the positives when I look back and I always try and take positives out of even like the worst kind of scenario. Like it really defined to me Like I knew when I come through that who my mates were and yeah. where they were and how much I needed them. And I guess you say that, you know, that time of your career and your life, that brought home to you what, what made you tick as a person? Yeah, I think it's just something that I'd, from being 16, 17, you leave school and I got into the habit of, oh, do you want to, when you're 17, you're driving, you know, you first start driving, or oh, do you want to come in a car? And you drive around, go Mac, McDonald's drive through and, you talk rubbish and that then 10 years later turns into, do you want to go and sit in Starbucks and talk rubbish? And it don't mean anything. And it wasn't, I'd never say to a mate, if there was any, if there's ever an issue, I'd say, oh, look, I need to speak to you about this, but it's not, it's just the general talking and, 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 and being with people that you, you're really comfortable with, which, which is what, what was different for me. And even I know when, um, when I was in New Zealand and I felt like that, when I moved back to Wigan, we'd signed Morgan Escaray. Now, Morgan came to Wigan speaking minimal English. 
and even in a name environment. I remember at the time thinking, you know what, I'm going to try my best to make sure that I try and give him a little bit of that, what I missed. And I never knew I'd be playing in France at the time, so my French was as bad as it could be. Bonjour was about all I could get there. <laughs> but I'd I'd call him and just go, or text him, do you want to go for a coffee? Or And when I would go for a coffee and he'd say, or uh, he'd basically say, I don't know, I've got no Wi-Fi. I'd be like, all right, so I'd call up somebody or can you come and fit his wi-fi and right. something like that for him he wasn't confident enough to go into the club and go look i've got no internet at home can you do it blah, blah, blah. he just sat at home on his orange france phone on 3g yeah, trying yeah. to you know like it's just not working and and I, I built a i built a nice relationship with morgan over over that time and um i remember one day he'd been at the club maybe 12 months 18 months and uh, he said to me, oh, do you want to come for a beer? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought that was strange for him to ask me. And his uncle was over from France. And I went to a pub with him and his uncle while they just spoke French for a full afternoon. And I just sat next to him. <laughs> and it was almost like he thought, oh, Sam, Sam as well make the effort it was the afternoon and me like half this bell I these two chatted in French it was a it was a, it was a shocker but um, I, I built that relationship because I knew that was something that if, if I'd have had I knew I'd have appreciated it at the time that's that's a really nice little story that um and I guess that's why you know we talk about the importance of giving and in mental health and the five ways of well-being because that will have made you feel quite good as well I, I yeah, guess you know when you do stuff for other people it makes you feel good and that's all right. Yeah, well, I, I knew that I'd made something a little bit easier for him, you know, and, and I thought, you know, it makes you feel good. You, it's like giving a gift. Everyone likes giving presents at Christmas. Everyone likes giving something to someone. I knew that I'd made it a little bit easier for him or at times when he probably, he'd never say he didn't, you know, he needed some chat or he needed a friend or whatever. I just felt like, I felt like I tried to give him that as much as I possibly could. And and, and in fairness, it, it went full circle when, when I was moving over to France, before I'd signed here. Or I'd, I'd signed, but wasn't I hadn't moved here. I was still at Wigan. Um, he he came and picked me up when I'd, I didn't know anywhere to go. I was staying in a hotel for a, for a weekend, looking at houses. He said, "I'll pick you up. I'll take you out to this really nice restaurant. Show me a restaurant that his friend owned, and went in and, and made connections. At a restaurant that I still go to today. So, yeah, it's funny how it, it goes full circle. Let Let's summarize that little period that, that you mentioned because you did come back from the NRL to to Wigan before you then left Wigan for the second time. Um, that second coming at Wigan was, I'm guessing, pretty tough for you because you almost went straight into surgery and then you were plagued by injuries and you were back as the, you know, the big homecoming hero. And, you know, yeah. it, I, I got the impression at the time, it was like, it was, it was very hard for you. And I remember hearing at the time, you know, through the rugby league gossip circles that when you came back with your injuries and, you know, they wanted rid of you from the NRL and you were done, you know, you were done as a player. You were never going to be yeah. the same player because you're, your injury just couldn't, you, you couldn't be the same player and you wouldn't have got a game um, over there anymore. That's why you had to come back. You know, those, those were the kinds of things that were going around. So for you, that must have been really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And those sort of external noises of, of people being critical of me due to, down to my injury, um, it, didn't really, it didn't really affect me because all those same things I was already asking myself. Now, as soon as I'd come back to Wigan, there was a big hoo-ha around me coming back which was amazing I really appreciated but 
as soon as I got back, went to see a surgeon. He said, look, your knee's no good. You need to have a, a synthetic PCL put in. So I did, and it was my first ever injury. And, and then I was just in a rut of doing my rehab and thinking, I was questioning myself, like for my knee to, you know, my, my biggest ability is, is agility. And, and for me to be looking at my knee thinking, I don't know if I can train my knee to do that again. Is that me done? So, so all these things that people were saying in question of, I was questioning myself. And, um, you know, there's, I, I, there's no harsher critic than myself. And, and I know that I was, I was questioning myself at times, but I, I took some, um, some confidence in looking around at other people that had come back from injuries the same and, and much worse. And, and it was only after that period that I sort of gained a true respect for people that come back from, from injury. And, you know, when you're 21, 22, you, you think I'll play forever. I'll be that one that never has an injury. Um, and it, it happens to all of us or the vast majority of rugby players take it at some point. And, um, you know, one of my good mates, Don Manfredi, who's, who's finishing at the end of this year, you know, he's had more knee operations than I could even count. And he's bounced through it every single time. I know I couldn't, I couldn't do what, what Dom's done. It's, it's so mentally draining and so emotionally draining when you're trying to come back from an injury and, and question, constant question every single day thinking, I don't think, I don't know if I can do that. And then you may wake up one morning and, and every time you take a step in rehab, it's funny, I'm watching it with one of our players now, Archie Romano, he's coming back from an ACL. He trained on the field for the first time the other day and he went in the changing rooms after and he could have cartwheeled around the room. You could tell just from being on the field, not, not, didn't run, didn't run with us, didn't do anything, just doing mobility with a physio on the grass and it lifts you. And every time you get one of those, you think, you know what? can't believe I've ever questioned myself but then when you've done that for a month you're thinking I can't run I'll never do it again and and it's a it's a it's a cycle you're in and and it is so mentally and emotionally draining but um you know I eventually came through it but it was it really it was an underwhelming return to Wigan when when as soon as I came back I was injured and I had to deal with all that uh, on one of our earlier episodes of of, of this series Anthony Malali came on who admitted he had a bit of a a realisation and self-awakening when he won the 17 grand final at Leeds. And then suddenly he realised that he didn't have it in him to do it again because A, he'd achieved his dream, but B, he'd experienced how hard it was to get there. And he couldn't actually mentally get himself into that zone to go and do it again. So he decided that if I'm going to carry on playing rugby, I need to do it for another reason. And that was for experiences. So he wanted to use it as a tool to travel. So, which is why I went to Toronto, yeah. which didn't end well. And then now he's playing semi-pro part-time in, in Carcassonne, in the south of France. Um, you made the move to France, but, at, you know, still at an elite level. Was there any kind of shift in your ambition or drive in, in your mindset at the time? Absolutely not, no. Um, for me, you know, my, my drive and hunger to, to win something is as high, if not higher than it's ever been before. Wow. For a couple of reasons, really. Like when, when you're at Wigan, you, you're bred into a culture of you're expected to succeed, you're expected to be successful every single year. You look at, you know, you go in the gym at Wigan and Wigan have got unbelievable facilities and, and they're very good at reminding you of the history of the club. Um, and there'll be pictures up of Hilary Anley, Sean, um, Sean O'Loughlin, Sean Edwards, all these great people around you and you, you, you feel that way and that's the pressure then and that's the expectation that you know and, 
and that's what you feel now. I'm at another club now where it's a very, very young club. You know, my heritage number at Wigan is 1,006. At Clan Dragon is 132. You know, that's the difference in these clubs. And uh, now I think I just want to be part of the first Catalan team to, to win a title. And, and you know, the, 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 the city of Perpignan, the people, everyone involved in the club, they're desperate for that. And, and I fully buy into that. It's a club that I love, an area that I love. And I want to, I want to be part of, the, of a team that wins the first ever, ever grand final. And, and I know, now I'm, I'm 32. I know that I've not got 10 years left to win stuff. You know, I was lucky in my, in my second Super League year, I won the grand final. And I was like, oh, how easy is this? Just, just win trophies all the time. And, you know, <laughs> I've realised over the years, it's not, I've, I've been lucky and, and picked up trophies, but they don't come um, as often as you'd like, uh, never. And, um, you know, so now I know my, my seasons are limited and I'm at a club that are really ambitious and desperate to win. So, yeah, my, my drive and my reasons for coming here are purely to win and, and, and certainly not for experiences. There are, you know, they're a, a really nice byproduct and something that I'll, I'll probably dwell on when I retire. So the crux of, of this podcast series is, is transition and how we, how we approach, I guess, you know, logistically, but, but mentally, emotionally, major change in our lives, which to professional sportsmen is, is retirement. And you've already said, you know, you, you maybe not got long left. At the start of next year, you'll be, you'll be 33 at the start of next year. So yeah. where are you with, with that process the the end of career mindset um well i'm i'm ready for it whenever it whenever it may come um a, f- a few years ago i realized that you know i do need to start thinking and i do need to you know get myself in in the right position you know, i've been playing long enough now that i've seen a lot of people retire and, and not not be ready for it um whether that's financially or or just a, a lot of it is you know i listen to your, your podcast with with leon and you know him knowing that he didn't really have his his plan his backup plans and and I know a lot of players like that. Um, so a few years ago, uh, you know, I, I got to to really thinking. Um, me and a friend of mine um, was one of my friends from from seven years old that I, I met at Wigan St Pat's. Uh, Reese, we we started a, a, a plumbing firm in England. You know, I I can't I can't fix a leaking radiator. I can't do anything. <laughs> but um, you know, he's he's a plumber, and I said, look, I can finance it and learn about business and I uh, did some business courses and um, and that was what I thought you know going forward we had a we had an idea of everyone to grow the business and by the time I retire we'd have x amount of employees and that'd get us x amount a month and um, and I've actually been bought out of that now I've not oh, even right. retired and that's that's been and gone, gone. <laughs> um, yeah yeah so that was my first sort of taste of outside of outside of rugby um, life uh, which I was I've been lucky that I've I've, I've been able to do that while I've been playing. Um, but yeah, but, but that's, that's sort of gone. And I, I've had to have a real think about what I want to do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that, you know, financially I've, I've invested in, in properties which have, have put me in a decent position um, when I do retire. Um, something I'm pretty, pretty passionate about is, is staying in the game in some capacity. Um, now, I'm, I'm not for coaching. I don't think coaching's for me. Um, a lot of people just presume. Why not? I just, you know what it is? I see coaches and how hard they work and right. how frustrated they get. And I think, I don't want that. Okay. I just, I don't know what it is. And people, people always presume that you're going to, if you're a spine player, you're going to do it. I've just never, I've never even, it's never even sort of 
been a something I've thought of. I, I just I don't know. I'm, I love rugby, but I'm not. A, I think you have to be a, a rugby nerd to be a coach. <laughs> Do you know you have to yeah. you have to watch every game and analyze every game. And I, I've got good friends who they they can dissect the game unbelievable. Thomas Lulawai is far and away. Thomas Lulawai could be coach of the year next year if you got a team. I truly believe that. Uh, he's just smart. He watches games and you'll talk about a game or you'll talk about a defence you're playing against. And and I'll know my my sort of markers of look. I know if you know if I'm playing against Wakefield, if Reese Lynn turns in, I know what I'm gonna do, blah blah blah. But Tommy'll know from the bloke in the middle of the field to the bloke on the wing and he'll dissect everything. And that's just not really I, I listened to a podcast with um Sean Long um a few months back now and he said when I was playing I knew like I wanted to coach like while I was playing I felt like I, I wanted to coach a team already and that's something I've never thought of you know I've never thought I want to coach a team but I like helping kids and I've, there's there's some young kids now at um at Catalan that I try and sort of do a few extras with and and tip up and, and where I can I get I get more from that than I would coaching a team um so it's coaching is not for me but um, along those lines, my my agent and now my friend Andy Clark, he's got um, a, a business. He's you know, been a very successful agent for for a long, long time um, with with outside sport. And um, I spoke to him recently about it, or twelve months ago, and said, you know, it's something. The agency side is something I could develop into at, at later in time. But for now, I want to I want to get hold of some young kids because you know I feel like I've got good experience of. You know, not being the best player coming through, as we discussed, then I've moved to the other side of the world, come back, I've been here. You know, I'm pretty pretty well rounded in terms of deals and moving and, and things like that. And I, I know that I was lucky to have good people around me, good family around me, good friends around me, good advice from clubs, good advice. Sean Wayne had a massive impact in, in everything I've done. Um, and I know that not all young kids have got that same that same uh, luxury so along with Andy and and, and uh, his agency company I, I want to get involved with just sort of mentoring young kids really um, and that can be anything from 15 years old up until well and whenever they wanted me um, I think I can I can think I can add some value there um, that's that's what I'm passionate about and that alongside the media stuff um, Sky Sports have been really good to me over the years and they've given me you know plenty of opportunities to to learn about media, be involved on game days. I've had a couple of little things on the old boots and all and, and stuff like that. Um, so for me, that's something that I'd love to get involved with. And I think through those two, through through media and, and sort of agenting, mentoring, I think I can, I'd can. i like to stay in the game in that capacity. But um, again, you know, I've got the wheels in motion for the, these things and hope they'll be ready whenever I do retire. But I'm hoping it's a, a few years down the line before I am. Yeah, I mean, a couple of interesting points there. You have clearly, just going on the length that you just gave me that in, in that answer, you've thought about it a lot. You've thought about it a lot. Yeah. And you, you know, you might still play another three years. I don't know if you're going to let the legend go at the top of your game or or just flog it out until you have to be scraped off the turf. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I get the impression you want to play for as long as possible, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. I still love playing. We, I was chatting to some of the boys the other day and um, it was one of the young kids, he's 19, 
and he was I was like you know my first preseason was 2008 and he was like 2008 oh, he was kind of real old then and I was like yeah and he's like and he still like doing it I said <laughs> I love playing I hate training I don't like training I feel like it's a waste now look at there's no point me going in the gym as well I've been doing it for 15 years I still look like this um but yeah, I still love playing, and I think I'll. I don't. I'm, I can't see that ever subsiding. But as well, I don't want to be that fella that they're like, "Is he still playing somewhere?" <laughs> you know, I don't want. I don't want to be that guy. So I'm not sure when I'll retire. Um, but it, it's it's funny at the moment because Joel's two years older than me, and, and he's looking at retiring soon. It's different, you know. He's a step ahead of me, and he, he's. It, it's good that we can sort of bounce ideas off each other. What we'll be doing, and we'll be doing very different things in life after rugby, but. Just being able to chat about it and get into the realities of it of, of of how it is and you know I've got friends that have finished playing rugby and gone on been really successful and I've got friends that have not done anything and they've ended up on a building site you know six months after retiring so there's a broad spectrum and I think I think there's there's a there's an onus on on clubs which I think there should be more education for young kids on money management yeah. as as you're coming through into the first grade and as you're getting paid what we'd call proper money you know I think there's too many kids in flash cars sleeping in the single bed in the mum's spare spare room um, and you know when you get to to retiring you know I think that costs you um, I mean I, I completely get what you said about knowing that you don't want to be a coach it, it just triggered when you were saying that when Kevin Sinfield retired 2015 um, he drove over to Manchester uh, a couple of weeks after that and to catch up and we went for a coffee and I said what are you going to do next and he said pretty much the same thing he said I don't want to coach he said Gary Hetherington has asked me yeah. if, do I want to be assistant to to, to Mac to, to Brian McDermott and I've uh, you know I've said to him Gary I'm not sure you want that I'm pretty sure Brian doesn't want that and I certainly don't want that um, <laughs> but it was kind of like you want to keep these guys involved in the club but Kevin's like I don't really want to do yeah. that then he went away to to work with the yeah. RFL in England and he, anyway he's ended well, he's, he's leaving Leeds now, but he's ended up, his heart made him go yeah. back. But he never wanted to do the coaching side. So that, that was very interesting, that, that answer. That, that reminded me of that conversation, that coffee I had with Kevin. He said pretty much exactly the same thing. In terms of your options, like saying what you're going to do, it just struck me that you've kind of dragged your family or certainly your wife all over the world, like the other side of the world, and then now in another country in France. And um, I get the impression that you're probably going to retire in France. Um, yeah, you, 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 I would like to. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're really settled. You know, my, my kids are in school, I've got my two boys are in school, my, my daughter will be starting next year. Um, I've got another another baby boy due a week today, so you know, my, my kids are, are fully in, engrossed in, in French life, they don't remember England, they don't remember anything of it. Just my eldest son's five, so he was two when we moved here. Um, the only thing he remembers is that we we had a couple of pigs in our garden in Wigan, um, pet pigs were for slaughter, and um, and that's all he remembers. When you say, "Oh, do you remember living in England?" He just says, "Oh, do we have pigs?" and and that's it. You know, so they have no memory, they have no connection. We have a lot of family fly out, you know, COVID permitting on holiday, so we see family, and that's just normal for my kids. You know, I've got I've got a few years playing in me yet, I think, in France, and and when I retire, my my wife loves it, so. We'd have to we'd have to try and convince our kids to move back to Wigan, or move back to England, and, and that'd be as big of a move for them as it was for us coming out here originally. So, 
Um, as it stands, you know, I'd, I'd like to, if I can, stay in France. Um, you know, I could travel back for work if needed, but, um, you know, my, my wife's been so supportive of everything that I've, I've done um, throughout my career, not only day to day. And, you know, I can come home from training and I've got a, a bad ankle. I'll be on the couch with my foot up. The kids will be running around and she'll be making tea clean. And, and she supports me every day like that. I'm really, really lucky, but she also supports me in the fact that when I, in New Zealand, said, look, we're going back to Wigan, she didn't like it, but she's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm happy to, to, to sort of go along with, on, on the ride. And, and then again, coming out to France, she was a little bit dubious, but I said, look, it's a great opportunity. She came and, and she loves it. Um, and I've always given her the promise that when, when I do retire, if there's something that she wants to do, then we'll, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. She's, did quite like to own a little Airbnb somewhere or a, a little wedding venue, maybe up in the in the north of France somewhere is something that she'd like to do. So whatever that is, you know, after when I retire, I'll be the stay-at-home dad trying to do a bit of part-time work somewhere, and and um, and, and and she'll have hopefully she'll have a passion that she wants to to throw herself into, and, and I'll have to repay the last fifteen years by by backing her whatever she wants to do. So so she might might be running a a B&B or something and have you up at five, six in the morning in the kitchen doing doing the guest fry-ups, right? If it means I can stay in France, I'll be up. I'll be cooking. I'll do the best <laughs> full English you've ever seen. <laughs> um, a final point then. It's been a brilliant chat. I really appreciate um, the time the time we've chatted. What's your... Uh, I always ask our, our guests at the end, you know, what, what's their outlook on life? How, how they view life now? You know, what, what they what they would say to a younger you about how to approach life? Um, I think it's just take opportunity. If you see an opportunity, just go for it. I think, you know, a lot of people in, uh, are hesitant to, to become uncomfortable because, you know, an opportunity arises that isn't, isn't the easy option. Um, I think you've just got to take those. You've just got to, you've got to think, you know, what, why, why not? And, and that's, it's a mentality I've, I've tried to, to have. And at times I've, I've not always followed it and, and I've kicked myself for it. But, you know, whether it be in business, in rugby, in, in life, you know, in whatever it would be, you know, if an opportunity arises, just go for it. Just go and take it. You know, the, the best things come from, from putting yourself in uncomfortable positions and uncomfortable situations and, you know, going through some adversity. May, it may be tough at the time, but I think you always, at the end, you, you know, you, you get the rewards. So, yeah. For me, it's it's opportunity if it's there, go and take it. I couldn't agree with that more, that last point. Uh, Sam Tompkins, you've been a great guest. Thanks so much for your time. Um, it's been really good chatting to you. Uh, take Cheers. good care. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.